the sound of Harry Dean Stanton playing Red River Valley from part 10 of Twin Peaks The Return. Hello and welcome to our second round table discussion of the show. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Hayley Inch. I'm Eloise Ross. I'm Beck Blakely. I'm Christian McRae. And last week we discussed trauma and Laura's story and this week we were just looking at ways of understanding Twin Peaks, the place itself and the layers of reality that are being gradually introduced and that are occupying a lot of theories that have sprouted up since the end of part 18. So given that there are a lot of theories to build off, for the sake of clarity, I thought it would be good to look at location by location and the key characters who live and work in those places. So let's begin in Las Vegas and with the house of Dougie, Janie E and Sonny Jim, which became the heart of the show. And people had a lot of conflicting feelings about this. A lot of people thought we spent too long there, that we were just dragging the show down. In the early parts, we spent much more time there than in Twin Peaks itself. But then over time, we managed to get, seemed to play more and more key role as the various strands of the story came together. Ello, did you have any feelings about uh, this? Might Vegas? be a good place. So I, I just alerted the guys that I had some notes about um, Mad Men and its structural relation to Twin Peaks as a TV show. This might be a good place to kind of bring that up because it's not super related in terms of content or anything. But given that you are mentioning Dougie's house in Las Vegas and people how you might have sensed that people thought, oh, we shouldn't spend so much time here, this is a waste of time, there's only 18 hours left, how can you be, you know, kind of showing us this place instead of giving us more about what Cooper is or showing us the Twin Peaks people? I think I was struck in the in episode 17 by some similarities to what Mad Men was doing in its final season and then when I, when I went back and reflected on Mad Men and its whole seven seasons, I thought it perhaps spent some time doing this, which was just pushing the audience away like the audience was drawn in and we were all attached to the characters but then it would spend huge segments of episodes on these peripheral characters characters that we would never see again ridiculous conversations engaging in like the psyches of characters who who we had no attachment to and and that frustrated me the whole time and in the final episode of season seven I watched it again today and I was crying. (laughs) The final episode of season seven, eight minutes before the end of Mad Men, Don Draper has gone on this quest and he's in Los Angeles. He's in this like hippie commune kind of area, finding himself very much the opposite of the ad agencies of, of Manhattan. And eight minutes from the end, he's in this support group and this random guy, Leonard, starts talking about how he's so upset and he's so... Um, lonely and he feels like the people in his life and his family don't love him and he talks about being invisible and it spends four minutes on this guy Leonard's speech and when I was watching it 
back a few years ago, I was like, why are we with Leonard? We've got eight minutes to go. Like, bring us back to the characters that we love, Matthew Weiner. Like, let's let's spend some time with them. But then at the end of Leonard's speech, Don just goes and gives him a hug and they both cry and the camera stays on them and they're crying. And, and after that, and then when the show ends, I was like, wow, that was amazing. I know I questioned you and said, why are you wasting our time? But in the end, it was incredible. Anyway, that's a really, really long way of saying that I think structurally these shows were doing similar things. I mean, I think David Lynch doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need as spectators. And I think that that's what that was, was like pushing us to appreciate other things and appreciate, I don't know, slowness or or something or, you know, reservedness rather than Agent Cooper's like always being alert and on the go kind of thing. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I just talked for a really long time. But that's what I think, like, being in Dougie's house was like for the whole show, reflecting on it. This totally makes sense to me in that, you know, given that Mark Frost is such an amazing TV writer, like, I do not doubt that Madman has been influenced on him. And Lynch has has said that Madman is one of the few modern TV shows of, like, the last decade that he has actually watched and he has enjoyed. Right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because I kind of got flecks of similarities throughout the this return se- season, um, but it didn't dawn on me until that. Well, actually, it was episode seventeen when when they repeated like ten minutes of firewalk with me, and I thought, you know, and I think you guys commented on it in your episode with Thomas Caldwell, you know, that fans were just feeling, oh my god, why are you giving us this stuff that we've already seen when we've only got one point five hours left? Like this is infuriating, and I think that Mad Men gave that feeling as well to its fans, and that that was when it struck me that maybe they were similar somehow. You know, yeah, I think stylistically, um, I would also look to Mad Men for some of the ways that the scenes in New York were shot in the early um, parts as well as the ones in Las Vegas where we're in office buildings but they're also very clean and clinical there's a lot of straight lines it's got this kind of like echo of 50s vibe I think I wouldn't be surprised and and it's also with some of the use of colours like the red front door from from Dougie's house was was really really notable and really really you know intelligently used I thought yeah but I I mean that's me kind of thinking about it structurally I never felt like, get me out of here. Mm. We're wasting time. Did you feel so. like that? How did you feel about the Las Vegas scenes? I felt... Well, I've never felt that I wanted to see Cooper on the prowl ever again. I didn't go into the series wanting it. So, for me, it was never really a problem. I did think, though, that there was time in the house that wasn't shot well and there was time in the house that was shot well. And I thought that was really interesting to see when things seemed important, when care was being taken... Um, that seemed to be really, really interesting. Um, and there were other sequences that just seemed to be kind of rushed together. And that was extremely strange to come back to the house and have it just be flat lit with like lights that seemed to be in the room already. Yeah, I remember um, you talking about this with Ike, about yeah. those scenes being shot totally differently. So I was like, what is going on? This house looks totally different. It's got like 100% more light, and even though it's, the, it's supposed to be at night time. So I was, um, that's the sort of reactions I was having back in back in that house but I do compare it to like the dinner scene with the brothers in episode 16 um, in that beautiful restaurant where things just sort of come together Mm. and Dougie is not just before even that awakening he's also just kind of more settled the character is kind of fully settled with us I think and we're just sort of watching him sort of pinballed across the plot at that point I really enjoyed those moments um, before he woke up. Yeah, and the use of um, Lady Slot Addict returning again mm. kind of unexpectedly right at the end of that part. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that was the other... I liked that universe a lot. <laughs> I didn't want to see it go. Um, and I thought Janie E and um, Sonny Jim had a kind of whole trajectory ahead of them that was way darker than what was going <laughs> to what was going to happen. I, I was really surprised that they survived. So, really? Yeah. Okay. I always thought we were going to end, end up in bloodbath. So. <laughs> I guess the blood, excuse me, the bloodbath happened outside the house, but with, you know, thankfully Janie E and Sonny Jim were saved. Yeah, mm. that's true. I also really love that episode, and forgive me, I don't know which it was, when the, um, the Mitchum brothers give the family a whole bunch of gifts, including that magnificently lit playset for Sonny Jim. And he's in the backyard at nighttime playing in this castle, basically, this playground castle, and it's fantastic and it's sort of, I don't know, it kind of stands in as a, this metonym for the house almost as like this, this beautiful playset that's kind of make-believe in a way, and that is just has come from almost nowhere. I don't know, I mean, that's kind of how it was introduced into the show. Yeah, mm. every dollhouse has a little dollhouse inside. Yeah. <laughs> so the house has got its place set, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. What did you guys make of the Mitchums? Because I think they took all of us by surprise in their character development because they were introduced as being these ruthless, like, mobster thugs that maybe would have a better home in, in a Scorsese production or something, and they kind of... <laughs> got turned into these completely different characters. I think, I know I was certainly side-swiped by their transformation into these good-hearted people as soon as the cherry pie turned up. And I kept expecting them to, to transform into, into thugs again, that it was all a game and that they were just, like, leading Dougie along or leading us along. But it didn't happen. No, but especially with the way that they would, they would riff off um, Candy or the way Candy would talk about them or their, her, her relationship with them was really, really strange and was one of these kind of beautiful Lynch-Frost devices where you could read so many different angles into it as a potential a story of a past abuse or, or like a really good-hearted story about people being saved or being given this sort of like safe home. I mean, that's kind of what I felt with the Jones household was that kind of like was one of the few kind of safe homes where you didn't have a horrible history of something happening and... It seemed like that, you know, at the beginning when we first saw the Mitchums, this was going to be like a really sad place. But in the end, we kind of only, only we saw funny things happen there. It was mainly this, a, a scene of comedy at their house, I felt, like with the breakfast discussion. Yeah, I feel like um, Dougie really brings out, you know, he brought out the best in people. So the essence of Dougie, even though he was kind of like a childlike figure for such a long time, he brought out the, you know, the true essence of people. And I think that's what was supposed to happen. So I found it really interesting at the end when it was like, hey, they've really got kind hearts. And yeah, Dougie had brought that out in them. But I also kind of found that really difficult at the end of part 18 when you're like, well, if the essence of Cooper isn't what we saw in Dougie, what is going on? Because I was like, it's the essence of Cooper. It's this goodness. It's this beautiful heart. It's this something that seeps out into other people. And I was like, that is what's going on. That's what's happening to everybody in Las Vegas is everybody is, you know, having their goodness drawn out by Dougie. But I'm like, what happens in part 18 if this isn't actually the essence of Cooper? Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that, like, Lynch and Frost decided to use Las Vegas as well because it's mm. like such a storied history in a, the, the most sinful place on earth or at least in America that he would be part of his culture I guess it is definitely one of the worst places I've ever been to in my life <laughs> so yeah <laughs> apologies to all our Las Vegas listeners but well yeah I mean I I love well I, I went to Las Vegas um, for my honeymoon and loved it really and it's um, 
and seeing that that awful music play when he's being driven in the back of the car, <laughs> like the worst song that he could ever produce, um, play, and it was like, oh, there's actually not, there's actually something very strange about the way that this city's being shown. It's like, for all the way it's being shown in all the different TV shows in the last 25 years, there's been so many interesting takes, and this isn't even a take, it's just like, slices of like little bits of images it's not really doing vegas it's got a kind of little fragments and bits and pieces of tropes it's always Very a childlike possibly like the first you know broaching honest interpretation of what vegas is because it's not trying to construct it as anything mm. as anyone's fantasy or anyone's fulfillment it's just what it is and it's kind of nightmarish as well it's just kind of like yeah day-to-day life like this yeah you know this is what happens outside of the strip this is what happens in the suburbs yeah like that the building the office building you know and the coffee shop i'm like we don't see this part of vegas all you see is casinos and you know regular people's houses and regular people's lives being torn apart by gambling so that was really fascinating as well to see that there's also no explanation for why Dougie and Janie E are living in, like, the 1960s. You know, like, the, the style of the house and the way she behaved towards him was um, quite, yeah. An unfinished estate. Yes. That mm. reminds me very much of the unfinished estate shops from the original Poltergeist where you've got, like, the signs and half, half a street and it looks very like things are about to explode anyway when you're shot down the street. Yeah. Does anyone have any theories, and forgive me if you've already broached this, about why they live on Lancelot Court? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I know, I just thought it was a tie-in back to Glastonbury Grove and the other Arthurian like uh, references we'd had before. Right. I mean, there was a lot of stuff written in the 90s about this use of you know, Glastonbury Grove as a as a place that was tying into this this sort of legend. I'm sure it's a Frost thing because he seems to be really across these sort of ancient myths and fables and that sort of stuff. So he would probably love to throw in these sorts of references about Lancelot Court and Sycamore Grove and these sorts of things. Mm. Okay. But, yeah, beyond that, I'm not really sure. I mean, there's mention of Welsh princes and stuff in the secret history, but there's no mention <laughs> of, like, which is like of the similar sort of era to Arthur, to Arthur but it's not, there's no, no direct references to it so far outside of these sorts of... Like places. Also, while we're in Vegas, we have uh, Randall Headley and Wilson. That whole that was which I gave some of the bigger laughs. I thought of the entire mm-hmm. return with some of their interactions. The Fusco brothers were kind of strange and then a bit awful, which they kind of had a different tangent. I thought they kind of started off as a Three Stooges thing, but then would, mm. that weird scene where somebody was getting brutalized in a nearby room and they were laughing about it was kind of like, oh, okay. They were also we had um, uh, Anthony Sinclair and his like attempts to try and poison Cooper, which ended up becoming this kind of, you know, black joke about him throwing coffee into a urinal and the guy next to him laughing about how bad the coffee must be. So, yeah, it was a, it was a place where we had lots of... <laughs> that gave them a chance to mix a lot of humour, I think, with more serious stuff. There's a huge amount of overacting in all these characters. Mm. Like, really bad as well. So it's it, it, it's pins together because it's so, so much of a kind of child's world in Las Vegas. Like, Tom Sizemore... Like, he's, he's really lucky to be alive. Like, the fact that he can still act and produce this role is kind of impressive. But, he you know, that character's not really pinned together by much and sort of a few kind of quirks and mm. gestures. So I found, I found that stuff really sort of hard to watch but sort of really interesting, very distancing, just watching him kind of put it together. And you're like, oh, my God, it's Tom Sizemore. He's still 
not out of jail, he's still alive. You know. <laughs> and his character's lucky to be alive too, Anthony yeah. Sinclair. Mm. Um, just also a throwback to Christian's first episode on the podcast, I'm very interested to how you feel about the character of the drug-addicted mother that was in the house across the road from Dougie's car. And her kid as And well. her kid, because yeah. I remember you saying that you were getting really frustrated with every time you saw her, you felt like the scenes were really drawn out and that there needed to be some kind of emotional payoff for that, which I don't feel like we got. We didn't get anything with her at all. Never. No, I think you just about covered it. I don't... I mean, I was... I think I was more frustrated that it was like, hey, Twin Peaks fans, you love numbers. Have some numbers. (laughs) (laughs) And it was sort of like a more like a, here's the morsels that you wanted, here's the code-breaking that you love. Um, and sort of crushing it and sort of hand, sort of crushing it in, in the hand and kind of so leaving it on the table. more in that way of, of Lynch and Frost giving us, giving us what not what we want but what we need in terms of being an effective show but then saying, here's what you want, here it is, but it doesn't actually give us anything. You know, if we want numbers, we can get numbers, but it doesn't lead to anything. I think it's more that, that it's, it's a woman made up really obviously is to be a drug addict like we need a drug addict scene rings around the eyes needle out of the arm sort of bits of crap on the table it wouldn't be it wouldn't be acceptable if if it was in another show but because it's in this show we're sort of looking for it in a kind of bigger structure it just sucks it just straight up sucks there's nothing to break in it except to sort of break the rhythm of those episodes like but i think this is what has happened with lots of characters that have either come in incidentally or characters that we've really loved that we've wanted to see, wanted yeah. to see more of is they've been given almost more weight than they kind of deserve. So yeah. those moments where we had the 119 were really poignant and we were like, what is the meaning of this and what's ha- what's going to unfold from this? And so we all get invested in it, but then nothing happens. And I yeah. think that's happened to lots of our characters yeah. throughout this journey is there's kind of been a weight put into it that you think means means it means something, but it really actually is just a, a side part of it. It's not really an important part. Yeah, because mm. yeah, looking back on it, like thinking back on that now, it foreshadows a lot of the sparkle stuff that we get in, in the town of Twin Peaks where we have people who are taking drugs and hitting some sort of spiritual level and it's a bad one and they're stuck there and it's a sort of cyclical thing. Because even like, you know, in Las Vegas when Cooper comes around and he's on the phone to Gordon Cole and he's saying 10 is the number of completion and the 119 is this woman kind of going past 10 and back to the beginning again and again and again. So there's a numerical way that you... See, this is the nerdy stuff I love, Andy. This is like... <laughs> but, you know, like, was it David Lynch this week has come out going, it's not a science laboratory. And so I'm like, oh, shit, all these numbers I've been looking at and going, oh, what does it mean? and what do the aeroplane windows mean? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. it's not a science laboratory. Maybe I'd need to take a step back. Definitely <laughs> Ruth Davenport, the woman who lived in the apartment. And we've got male John Doe. We don't know whose body that is. Nothing's come back on those prints, but there's another set of prints all over the apartment, and we've got a hit. A definite local hit. Bill Hastings? Oh, my God. Yeah. He's my kid's principal. So in Buckhorn, South Dakota, a fictional town, uh, we saw a lot of Cole, Albert, Tammy and Diane hanging out in a 
very nice hotel that is probably almost too nice for a small town in South Dakota. I miss Tammy. Just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't so seen her in two weeks and I'm feeling <laughs> a bit sad. <laughs> so I remember a lot of the time everyone has seems to have quite strong takes on Tammy and I was all like, no, this overacting or this movement of hers will come, there'll be there'll be some sort of point to it. There'll be right. like a reason this is happening or she will be an alien. No, Andy. She was a snake alien, Andy. <laughs> okay, yes. Okay. And you were right all along and I was a fool to ever doubt Stephanie you. was Sorry, right all Steph- along. I'm not a Tammy fan. This is amazing. Yeah. Wow. So... So um, now looking back, how, what, do we, what do we make of Tammy and what she brought out of Cole? Because Lynch put himself, like, really up front in this, in this series. I really didn't like her to begin with. And I don't want to, you know, get into too much Tammy bashing because I feel like it's, it's an easy thing to do. But she is no, one of the... That's a good name for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Tammy bashing. Oh, Maybe that can be our next one, Andy. Maybe not. She is, you know, as you said, Christian, she's one of these people who over overacts, like... Yeah. Terrifically overacts. Yeah. Um, so, so much. And I think that that was one of the things that, that really pushed me from her because I was, I just didn't understand it. And I was like, she's miscast. I think that's what everyone said. She's miscast. She's only cast because she looks like she does, which is where I think we are trained to go as viewers because that is the history of the way that women and men and everyone seems to be cast a lot of the time is is by the way that they look and, you know, there is a kind of devastating history in that in that sense. I don't know what it was, but it was one one episode in particular that just the camera didn't leave her and she did these very, very stagey poses and I was like, this is all this all fits. She's meant to do this. And I thought, is she somehow placed here by higher force? I don't know, or is you know, is this just all part of her being? I don't know, there was something about it. I really, I decided that I loved her. I read the interview with her and that really spoiled the illusion. I was like, there's nothing, there's nothing behind this <laughs> other than her going, I'm not an actress, I, I, I don't act. Um, I haven't Lynch asked it, me to be is she, is she like, was that, was that during the NDA period? Possibly? Yeah. Was, 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 so was maybe, it the Vulture interview? Yes. Maybe now she could say some more thoughtful things now that the show is over, I'm not yeah. sure. Or... Did, did Lynch and Frost demand that she say nothing to, like, mm. you know, sustain well, that? The way she came out in the interview, it was like everything that she did, because we were all, I think in the podcast you were saying, oh, you know, every movement, there's got to be a reason behind <laughs> this. You know, Lynch doesn't, doesn't do things accidentally. <laughs> but then in her interview she came out saying, well, you know, I, I did this and I wasn't really directed. And except for that walk, which she did when she was told to walk to the cafe and she did the hip yeah. swinging thing and the very you know and so I was kind of like oh I don't think there's actually anything behind this <laughs> other than just her I enjoyed how upfront Krista Bell was about that just saying like no I'm not an actor David just asked me to be in it because we're pals and I was very very honored to do it and very scared but I just did it and he seemed to be happy mm. with what I did <laughs> which is great I'm like very happy for her and if that was me I'd be extremely yep. pleased to be able to be in such an awesome yep. thing but yeah and have such a huge role I, I mean, think everyone was role. looking for something Tammy Preston was so like important. was like gonna be bigger than Cooper yeah. I remember of, I had no idea history. who she was but when you you, before it started, you were very excited about her because um, you knew her name because yeah. obviously she and David Lynch are pals and you really wanted to know who she was and that, that um, Tammy had such a big part in yeah, Mark she was like diaries. The, yeah, I mean, a lot of people thought she was going to be the new Cooper. She was, like, obviously amazingly smart. She was pulling all this information together through this dossier sort of book I mean, thing she could have been if they'd gotten out of that room. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> 
Yeah, so it was very strange to like have that moment where Diane and Cole are having a cigarette on the steps and she's just standing, just doing this lizard move thing That's over and it. over again. That, that was, shot, I don't know, anyway, it was just just so deliberate. There was something really fascinating about it all and I loved it. So having read The Secret History, you get this intelligent person who's confronted with a changing set of facts and you go, okay, well, this is a person who's supposed to be a kind of mostly reliable narrator as we go through. I think that the only thing that will add to the discussion is her first scene acting with no instruction from Lynch was the interrogation of Matthew Lillard. That was her first time on, in front of camera. That was like, the first thing she shot, yeah. And it's, right. And not only can you tell, but, you know, like, it doesn't ruin the scene, but I don't accept... I've always said, like, to, I don't know, like, David... To say that David Lynch doesn't make mistakes, it's like it's actually so much easier on everyone if we admit that he does. This is so, <laughs> so great. This is why I was, I'm so excited to be on a podcast with you because <laughs> I do think, you know... She's like, sloppy. And sloppy is okay. sloppy moments, and I remember that from when you were first on the podcast is <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, maybe some of this is sloppy. Maybe it's, yeah. you know, continuity errors, not... Yeah. I saw that yeah. deeper meaning. <laughs> I, I do, despite the revelation in the final episode about there being, you know, several planes of existence, possibly. I do think there were continuity errors in the show. There's continuity, that. and that's okay, and it's fine. But there are, you know, you don't. We don't have to ascribe that this just because he's smart and eccentric doesn't mean he's got it all sorted out. And I think that. But I think he act- does. I think this is a genius. <laughs> is that people are bringing their own meaning to it, which is what Lynch and Frost will say is intended: is you bring your own meaning to what is presented. So yeah. Sure. I think. Like, I think I, the character is fine. It's fine. She doesn't ruin the. She doesn't ruin anything <laughs> um, at all. I think it's more like. If all the problems with her are the problem with all the FBI characters, and they could have come out of the room a bit more, but it's fine. It's fine. They're a bit silly, um, and they're all just sort of riffing off really Gordon Coles. By the way, did I mention that there's a spiritual being out there that we should have told you about 25 years ago? Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say right now, Christian, having you on so early in the show and saying David Lynch makes mistakes and it's okay to point them out really liberated me personally. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We all have to be able to express this. But I think it's interesting to be able to have continuity errors but also to have these tiny little moments like Ed seeing his reflection in the window, which you're not going to notice you know, on the first thousand times you watch that scene necessarily because it's so it's such a tiny little thing and then it's you know people have written like literally hundreds and hundreds of blog posts about you know potential ways of <laughs> probably reading the same two people probably the same two people hundreds yeah. Of blog posts. yeah so it's an interesting yeah. mix we have to be aware like there's on on twitter there's this guy who yells at people who talk about twin peaks that he's the one who decoded mulholland drive and you have to read what? and you have to read his amazing huge like three-dimensional map of the timelines of mulholland drive and you read one word and you're like, shut up. <laughs> shut up. I'm so pained Why? already just by you describing that, and it's like, And it's just like, relax, just watch it, just take it with you, let it engulf you, let it like become part of you and leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. But I do also love that people get really invested in it. I'll look, you know, I think the you can draw your own meaning from it and you can look into every number and every continuity error, which probably is a continuity continuity (laughs) error not like um, some deeper meaning Mm, and you can make some meaning out of it which I think is amazing yeah 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 I totally agree 
Um, it's also interesting that with the FBI crew, they, the way that we receive communication in Twin Peaks information tends to come through various means, but in, with FBI, it's super dialogue heavy. It's like, this is what Blue Rose means. You know, this is how we this is how we communicate. I'm just going to dump all this stuff now. Usually toward the beginning of an episode, and then throughout mm. that episode, you'll start getting stuff. The Sarah Palmer things. You I mean, that's great because historically, in you know, detective narratives, that's where all of the exposition occurs. Is in these like very plodding scenes in a detective office or mm. in a police station in headquarters where this one man comes in and explains everything and then there might be, like, another man breaks in and says, but I've just discovered something else. Mm. And, you know, it's all very, like, oh, my God, this could not be any more obvious. I don't know. I'm just, like, is is uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost just saying this is the way it's always been done um, and it's great, it's very successful, let's not fuck with it somehow. Well, yeah, I don't know, although the rest, of their, the rest of their narrative construction is very much, you know, challenging that kind of thing. There are certain certain elements that they will draw on. Well, that's that one of the things I thought the first two seasons did so well was that mix, is that, well, you know, you've got the history of Sherlock Holmes sitting in a room, getting information, never having to leave the room and solving the case without even having to, you know, stand up. But then you've also got these, you know, the, like the noir story that you're referring to where somebody will come in and give you a story and then you'll go out and there'll be some gunplay and you'll, you know, solve the mystery eventually. But, you know, with, with the first two seasons you had this amazing thing where you would have that and then you, you know, have this archetype that you already was bringing a whole bunch of knowledge and understanding with and then you would have a dream and then suddenly everything would go out the window. And I think that was an interesting way that yeah. this happened in quite a lot of parts of the return is that you'd have that intro and then all the things you'd just been referred to, like Blue Rose and whatever, but then, you know, you would think you'd have a, a grip on it and then you'd have Sarah Palmer would take her face off and you'd be like, whoa, okay, <laughs> we've got some, like, primitive art happening here, we've got some crazy symbolism and we've got, we've got what we thought we, we understood and you've got stuff that will never be solved, like was she the person who swallowed the bug, the frog bug? Mm. Probably. Does, does it really matter? I don't know. It was awesome. Anyway, we should talk about Constance while we're in oh South Dakota. <laughs> Thank you. She's my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> She's mine too. I adore Constance. Do, uh, do we all think that she and Albert got together in the end? We do. Of course they did. All right, good. Mm. She should have come along. She should have been in the car. <laughs> there would have been... Oh, I could like, have. She should have just been like, that's it. Mm. Coming on, I'm an FBI agent now. Yeah. The FBI can yeah. always use more pathologists. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Come yeah. to yeah. me. Like, Deputise me. Yeah. But that's one of the little vignettes that I think actually works in the, you know, it was given a little bit of weight. We saw them in the restaurant. We, we saw them talking. Or Albert and Constance, sorry, I should clarify. And I think it worked. I think we got a little bit of closure. And when mm. you look at it in the scheme of things, yes, we, we watched 18 hours of TV. But also it was only, what, over the time frame of... A yeah. few weeks, <laughs> yeah. mm. you know. So in that, it kind of works, and it it gives me hope. And two of my favourite characters <coughs> got to spend time together. What I really liked as well is that um, that same night that Albert and Constance had dinner together, Albert went to Gordon Cole's room and gave him some information. So you knew it was this finite dinner that they spent together, and that then they parted and they didn't do anything untoward or you know. Untowardness. <laughs> well, yes, like maybe but after wish that, that information, Albert, the French, that Albert the French gets his... lady, yeah? Was God. it that night? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was it? Maybe. Yeah, unlike Gordon Cole, I know, like, what a slapper. But <laughs> Albert is a gentleman. 
<laughs> everyone. I think that that, I mean, that was, I was, I mean, part of me was like, why isn't he like boning her right now? But also <laughs> it was just quite nice. Anyway, Albert, I can stop talking about boning. Albert has spent the past 25 years <laughs> desperately learning how to control himself and his wild bisexual, you know, like proliclivities. Uh-huh. He's very well behaved now. Yeah. Mostly. Mm, mostly. But Although may Miguel Ferrer be having a very good time right now. Yes, yes please. Uh, so also um, in Buckholm, we had uh, the whole story of Bill Hastings. I was I, – sorry, I know I've been talking a lot. I was really quite stunned at how quickly I forgot about that story. Yeah, it was getting it set up as a brand I new I remember when, when Bill Hastings was, was killed in that car, I thought that was stunning. I loved the shot of him with his – head ripped out <laughs> his brains ripped out it's also a much more creepier scene when you watch it now and you just watch Tulpa Diane just oh. watching and smoking and she was like I know this is gonna happen and I'm just gonna let it happen because like I'm not gonna get my hands dirty or chip a nail I and I was stunned and I was like thank you Bill Hastings for bringing so much emotion to this show but I just forgot about it very quickly I think the although it's I've never really been a fan of like or not that I've never been a fan. I've just never seen it work that you have a transmedia website attached to a TV show. But I did really like the fact that this character knew something really huge was happening and it had an investment and was able to communicate it on his own terms in that speech, uh, in the interrogation, mm, where he was yeah. like, you know, we were going to go snorkeling and all this stuff. But more than that is whatever this the whole extra spiritual universe was, he had his own language for it. And that gave it a kind of, that gave the universe really some really beautiful growth, I thought. And you're like, oh my God, there could be hundreds of characters out there who know about stuff or have thoughts about it or have experienced stuff. And that gave it a kind of weight and energy, I thought. Um, so I really, really had an investment in him. And I, I was fine with him getting eaten, but... <laughs> yeah, did you go on his website after as well? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah got I mean, me. it's very Frost, Mark Frost style yes. links. And, yeah. um, it's very 90s, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the whole technology... There's a lot to say about technology being frozen in 97, but, yeah, it's like <laughs> the very 90s design and ideas. The whole... I mean, Secret History is very 90s as well. Yeah. Why do we think that he, in particular, was the person in the world who selected possibly from thousands, as you might say, Christian, who was chosen in this show to represent those people who knew something? Why him? Um, I... I th- I think the Buckhorn's an interesting place because it's like a frontier town in a way. So you've got this, like, mix of nature, this de- isolation, and then you've got these weird characters who live there, like, you know, like, like you've got on the outskirts of Vegas in some of the scenes that we saw there. You've got these people who have, like, developed their own worlds, their own fixations that he can... Like, there's lo- probably loads of librarians out there or people who work in schools who, have the, who in their own time, have, like, bizarre fixations such as these. And so I think it's just an example of every man just, like, following, a, like, a weird nerdy passion and then just it manifesting into this really, really unexpected way. I mean, you had the same thing happening with Freddie Sykes. One, yeah, I was one... going to say Freddie. It's like, yeah. where is, like, well, why not? Why not Why not me? Yeah. <laughs> was it, why, why me? And the giant's yeah, like, exactly. why not? Yeah, I guess. And then at the end when he, like, so, so unnecessarily he says, this is my destiny. I'm like, he's just feeling it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love Freddie so much. Yeah. I really love him. The fact that the giant was able to speak to him and said, you will have the power of attraction engine. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> this, is like, this is like Beyblade now. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, we were a long way from I, I will tell you two things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Sorry, tell you three things. I will give you, like, power. Like, yeah. What? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting the way that the giant will communicate in different ways to different people. 
Um, also in South Dakota, um, well, we actually we had Jerry Horn's journey through the Midwest as we're talking people travelling, or his foot. Um, Christian just made an amazing face. Is <laughs> that <laughs> because it was one of the most amazing things in Twin Yeah, no, like, it was actually... This journey. I, actually, I was, yeah, no, I was, I'm actually totally fine with it. I was just like, oh, my God, Jerry Horn, yeah. That happened. So he made it to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. How far is it? It's a very long way. So it makes me think, like, was he moving through portals or something? Because it, it, over that space of time that we saw, it seems... So how, how was he travelling by... How far? Oh, I'll, 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 I'll do the math. Something. Yeah. See, I just want to know how many days walking <coughs> was that? And did he have a water supply? Yeah. Did he have yeah. a compass? Or was he just following... What was he on? Was he on DMT? Was, did he say something? <laughs> no. He said he something. Well... I'm presuming, I don't know if he was on Sparkle because no, he no. didn't quite behave like people who were on Sparkle were, but he speaks about, and he's in the very first episode, he speaks about, you know, these special strains of pot that he's now being able to grow abundantly and legally. So I don't know whether he just took something that took him somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so the distance is uh, 1,339 kilometres. Fuck! From North Bend, which I'm assuming... No, Are you Google Mapsing that? Yep. How long does it say that walking would take? Uh, it doesn't say walking. Driving takes 12 hours, 50 minutes. And we're assuming this is over, like, at yeah. least a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, a lot. So, you know, given that... But he was magically... There was His foot was, was clearly not of this world. <laughs> well, it must be because it would take you longer than the duration of the show to walk that far. So he must have got some assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Maybe or Jerry's special blend. Special makes blend. You <laughs> or mother's hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was nice to see Jerry Horn, I thought. I mean, of all the people to come back, and that was something that was beautifully unexpected. They had binoculars. That was one of my favourite parts was when it was like, his binoc- he thinks his binoculars killed someone. I was like, <laughs> that's so great. Yeah, and I liked how his whole story was bookended by a chat to his brother, mm. like face-to-face and then come and save me, I'm naked in a prison. <laughs> mm. Well, not that many people actually travel west, weirdly, in in Twin Peaks. It's made, like Jerry's journey was east, and I've just found the walking, actually walking, okay. 808 miles, and it only takes you across two other states. So it's actually, no, and that would take 270 hours, apparently. Okay. It's doable. It's he doable. walked non-stop. Yeah, or ran, yeah. Mm. Didn't okay. food. Um, but people who do travel west are Chantel and Hutch. Who have That's had true. a really interesting journey? Oh, Chantel and Hutch. Um, were you a fan of Chantel and Hutch? You know, I really liked the way that they were introduced. In that, Bad Coop has to recuperate, <laughs> um, and he has to recuperate. And we get the hints that not only do other people help him, but they know he's not normal. Mm. And there is a huge amount of implication when they're like working together. He's like, I need some phones. I've been shot, but it's okay. You know it's okay because I'm something yeah. else. And so there's all these implications in that that are just so good. So I actually really, really liked their first few interactions. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed them. I didn't wasn't really that invested by the end. I didn't mm. really need, you know, sort of didn't really know where they were going. You didn't need the big showdown? No, I needed a showdown. No, that was fine. It was just like the shooting of the, the okay. Warden Murphy, um, which was like... Oh, we're doing this now. All right, let, let's do it. But I really enjoyed their introduction. I thought that was, it was expanding the, again, it was expanding the universe in a really unexpected way. Yeah. It's like yeah. all these people know, but they're not talking to each other and they're using different words. And it's really, um, it's really adding something 
really quite strange and I really like that. Yeah. I also enjoyed how pop cultural extra textual they were because obviously, you know, the actors Jennifer Jason Lee and Tim Roth are known for very particular roles. It's kind of like a big commentary on pop culture as it has developed since Twin Peaks was last on air. Hutch and Chantel are simultaneously very Tarantino-esque characters. They're mm. kind of Coen mm. Brothers-y yeah, yeah, characters. Yeah, exactly. Considering how... I, I have no idea whether it's, you know, intentional or not, but I was thinking of the Coen Brothers so much during the return and so much to the point where I'm just kind of like... it has to be deliberate in a way you know even just with casting and are they that sort of thing do you no. know no idea okay I, I don't think so as far as i know yeah but do you think that's just the humor like the humor like there were particular scenes and particular characters that brought humor to these mm. moments and i think it was an excellent choice in casting because their energy together was incredible so that's why we loved them or a lot of people really loved them I even though they were so e- the, know, evil the Cohen brothers also engage in pastiche and that's what yeah. david lynch and mark frost do in twin peaks maybe that's where the similarity lies mm. i don't know in presenting something to us as an entirely serious universe mm. but also inserting humor yeah. is inescapable and, and I, that those senses are similar yeah and i think it's good that you can now kind of go away and look at these three different directors' works and kind of see how they talk to each other because I think they do. I think, mm. you know, the the, the Coen brothers and, and Tarantino are generally pretty, you know, intelligent pop culture-wise and, and are very deliberately pulling from certain things while making their own particular narratives and their own particular points of view. But, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly interested now to go back and... Yeah, watch watch some particular Coens mm. and and see how they speak to New Peaks and how New Peaks speaks back to them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because people were talking a lot about um, Lynch refer- referencing his earlier work and in the interview people were here at the end of this discussion with John Neff, he talks specifically about how he can see the key sound and visual motifs re- recurring mm. from earlier works. Which and Lynch says in his interview that came yeah. out this week, no, there's no intended references to earlier works. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit, of David. Of course he does. He can't help but it. I think people sometimes think about Wild at Heart and how Cohen He just does it to, to play with us now. He says Like, that. come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes. Um, yeah. So anyway, that, yeah. So I think that was that was a lot of interesting uh, storylines that we people weren't expecting at the beginning, like to have all these these big open shots of the, the Midwest, and um, the way that the magic was kind of incorporated, or weird strangeness was incorporated into the daily life of Twin Peaks versus how it yeah. is was in Vegas and that, in. That word magic, I know I kind of said it, but I was really reluctant to and I was kind of searching for a different word. But magic is not something that's part of the universe, is it? It's not, nothing's magic. It's just, it's just existence. It's just different kind of mythologies rather than magic in Twin Peaks. Balthazar Getty makes an explicit magical move. Okay. Um, in that confrontation with Richard Horn. That's red, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so red. He doesn't explicit, like, disappears the coin, puts it in his mouth. So there's literally, like, an old school, like, stage magic move um, that's then, like, yeah, so I 
There's, there's like a, there's like mentions over there. In a yeah, sketch, and yeah. we see it in season one with uh, Mrs. Tremond and her yeah. grandson who's learning magic who makes the gumbosia disappear. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it's like, yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, that's kind of a, um, like a, almost like a lazy term f- in the way that I think people who are seen as like fairly normal or onlookers might see how Doppelcoop is acting or what mm. we were referring to earlier with Chantel and Hutch just being uh, almost like mind controlled in a way where they just kill people and you know, he doesn't have to pay them or anything. It's just. They're just requested. Yeah, they looked like before before it ex- before it sort of explained them a little bit more. I thought they were like familiars, like they were kind of bonded to him in a kind of master slave relationship. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it yeah. Didn't, yeah. didn't quite work out that way, but that's why it was sort of implied a little bit. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. Which brings us to Twin Peaks. So we, we first. Wait, 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 wait. What about New York? Oh, are we going to? Uh, okay. There's yeah. nothing to say about New York except it was shot beautifully. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That weird apartment was great. Yeah, and also just randomly, we never found out what the fuck was going on in Buenos Aires, did we? No, no. Not explicitly. No. 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 It feels like a Philip Jeffries. Things actually were just what they seemed. There wasn't a bigger story to it. To that box was just merely there to relay messages or something. Stock footage of Buenos Aires too. Just like oh, that stock, photo! Do you remember that photo shot? of the yeah. last photo <laughs> of bad coop in Buenos Aires? <laughs> surely nobody yeah. could possibly believe yeah. it. Really also, who was the anonymous millionaire? Double coop. It was double coop. No, was it? When did that happen? No. Yes. Well, when we saw the photo of him with the glass box, but the guy who made the glass box for him that Albert showed. Oh, that was intercepted. Really? Yeah. I thought I that was that. just like, look how freaky this is. He's with the glass box. I didn't. I didn't make the connection. How did he get to be? Yeah, where's his dollars come from? Because he... He's devious and evil. (laughs) He doesn't need anything. That's that's how you become wealthy. He runs a meditation school. (laughs) (laughs) He's got all the money. In Manhattan. This is is my one hope for season four, (laughs) which is going to happen. Um, (laughs) That, yes, we find out who the millionaire is because the rest of the stories I'm quite happy to shut shut down because I don't really want to keep going there. But, you know, the millionaire thing. Let's go there. I do like it, yeah. Yeah. The fact that the photo shows him talking to someone who looks a lot like Moby. (laughs) And Moby is in the final, is in the song that episode listed as Moby and the rest of the band are not. Mm. Yeah. I I think it's Moby. So Double Coop is. Talking to the musician Moby who's in the fiction. The millionaire is. Well, I mean, my understanding of the glass box with Double Coop was that it was made, it was created to be able to capture. Yeah. Like like a good coop when he returned to Earth, which we saw him float briefly and then disappear while the experiment was chasing him and trying to kill him. So it was a really expensive failure, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. I also liked the explanation that was floating around for a while that it was also there to capture Zhao Day. Yes. But that's now in retrospect, I think it's kind of retrospective, which wishful thinking, but the fact that it was there for everything that came through that, that space was really interesting. I really liked that. Those characters for those ten seconds mm. we had them. Yeah, same. That's really good. Yeah, and I really love that theory that was going around that Diane had set them up to like be pawns and be killed in order to save Cooper, but that didn't come to no. pass. Yes. Um, any other thoughts about New York? The nanny. Sorry. <laughs> Flushing Queens. That's what we should always Flushing be Flushing Queens. Can we just, like, do the song in unison right now? No. That would be a treat for your listeners. Uh, no. Six of us. I, five I, of I, us. Do. I don't think maths. Andy's willing to risk our extremely healthy listen rate. So, right. okay. I think yeah. it's interesting how New York was just left behind at some point, you know, mm. and I totally forgot about it for a period of time when initially everyone was like, what is that glass box? Who is this millionaire? Mm. And that 
everyone was like, that's a mystery to solve. And then it's like, oh, nobody cares about that anymore. We've got a bigger mystery. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I we love that. And it was frustrating because it was like at the – and I particularly remember it because it was recent at the end of the episode where Sarah Palmer takes her face off and we're like, oh, my God, where is that story going? But the next episode doesn't deal with it and just introduces this new mystery where we're like, oh, my God, I need to figure this out. And the, the show was doing that basically every week. Yeah. This is where an 18-hour movie doesn't really work because <laughs> – I mean, if you watched a movie that was, you know, 119 minutes or whatever movies are, you'd kind of remember that first yeah. 20 minutes yeah. and that would be an integral and part of it. And you would say it was a, a lazy narrative if it introduced something and didn't yeah. wrap it up. Yeah, but in 18 hours everyone's like, oh, yeah, that was in the first couple of episodes. I mean, I, and I really fine. appreciate that and I think that it's fine and, and, I mean, I love when makers will challenge that kind of idea that everything needs to have narrative closure and perhaps it's just in that if we call it a movie and we think of it in terms of needing to be this holistic kind of narrative is that what we think of movies and is that why we need to challenge that I, that definition in ourselves or whatever? But, you know, that's all in that kind of tricky terminology and yeah. I don't know. No, it's interesting looking, right, yeah. looking um, at the very first commentary that came out after those first four episodes dropped and looking and watching everybody struggle with the idea of, oh, my God, how can I recap this thing? It's not really working for every other show that I've ever written about. I have to rethink of how I, you know, people are, people are writing about TV and then people writing about the way that people were writing TV about the first four episodes of the show. And everyone was focused on the glass box and it was like, lol, look at this, me- this symbolism of staring into a glass box for 25 years, yeah. waiting for something yeah. to happen. <laughs> Um, and there was all these projections about how this was the, where the mystery was and how it wasn't about Twin Peaks. It was about New York and it was about what was going to be happening here and how this was like this portal mm. over the city mm. and it was going to be drawing in the sins of the city and all this sort of stuff. And then we got, yeah, it's just really interesting watching how these um, these various narratives shifted. And, yeah, I think you're totally right. Like this, the way that, that it, it's, it's just so strange to be able to just abandon it. And yeah, yeah. That's right, abandoning. There were threads that were abandoned, but it didn't matter almost. But no, everybody was loving it. Like, this yeah. is so exciting. And, it's like, like, when Bill Hastings was murdered, I mean, his story reached a conclusion, but then it was abandoned. And, like, that is amazing that that can happen. But do you think it's amazing? Because I think... <laughs> <laughs> I think this is my frustration is I would I, I would think it's more genius if those little bits were were pulled back together. You know, like when you see a comedian who's incredible and you realise that something they referred to in the first ten minutes of their set is drawn into this final concluding joke at the end Mm. of the set. And I get a really big, you know, a lot of satisfaction from those moments. And I feel like there could have been immense satisfaction. Mm. And I don't know, you know, I understand that this is a big mystery that's been left and, and, you know, we can all draw our own conclusions. But I also kind of go... I really enjoy that moment where it's, you know, orgasm-like, where you're like, wow, it's all come together. Well, I mean, yeah, I I know what you mean and I totally also have that feeling when things fit. But, I mean, Ed and Norma had a conclusion and they had, you know, the strings and the violins and they had the big kiss and they had the big musical union and that was amazing. But I'm like, would it have gotten a bit tiresome if every single (laughs) storyline was tied up like that? I don't know. I feel like maybe I would have just been like, oh, well, he's just tying up strings now. And I could have sensed the ending coming, mm. even though I could I could sense the ending was coming. I couldn't sense it. I knew it because I knew how much time was left. But the show, narratively, given what I know, was not telling me that the end was coming. Ultimately, Twin Peaks isn't about satisfaction. 
Mm. Like, it's it's really not that much about satisfaction on, like, so many levels. And I think at an elemental storytelling and emotional level, it's not about giving you satisfaction. It's about making you uncomfortable. It's about making you turn inward and examine yourself in relation to what's going on. And I don't think it's at all interested or thinks is very interesting, you know, a lot of traditional storytelling methods. Mm. I agree it's not about satisfaction. I think the thing that I keep on thinking about every time I think about the show is Peter Deming on Instagram commenting on Showtime's official account saying, wouldn't it have been good if we had spent some of this money on shooting? Yeah. Multiple times, multiple times over the last few weeks. So Peter Deming, not just... Not cinematographer. Just, cinematographer. Not just, like, cinematographer, but David Lynch's co-worker for, like, 30 years now on multiple, multiple projects, clearly signalling that not everything was happy during production and certainly not during the funding phase. So I think, like, for me, it's always about... The show is absolutely, like, like you say, how it's not about being satisfied having everything wrapped up and it's exactly right... At the same time, there's just the show was not made perfectly. Like it's not all there in one piece I mean, to what be decoded, and there's elements that are just left alone. But because perhaps there just wasn't enough time, mm. and they just couldn't get nail everything down. And some parts you just have to go. That's fine. It's over. There's not. There's an imp- there's an implication there that we'll just have to let what do you make of I'm really interested because I'm not as invested in the show as some other people are um, about you know we consider that the show is a text in itself and we can read it that way but then we also have commentary from people like Peter Deming um, Cheryl and Fenn um, (laughs) other other people involved in the show who who weren't entirely satisfied people like um, Julie Cruz maybe you know who who don't like where it has come to and how do you reconcile those kinds of responses with the show itself do you consider them separately or do you is it impossible to do that well, I would say it, w- it was easy mm-hmm. to separate them, but because of the way that the show wound up bringing, like this, having this metaphysical d- dimension to it, that this stuff becomes almost part of it in a way. Because I know there's been a lot of theories, and it's, plenty, it's totally fine if people disagree with this, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of people saying, you know, we wound up in the reality of people, of like Cooper realising he was in a TV show, or there was all these, like the final part you know brings in this this way that you see north bend as it is not as twin peaks so that way you start bringing in all this other other stuff i mean this whole idea that where the dream is with the dream we're watching them four three zero is the aspect ratio of tv like all these ways that you can start (laughs) digging in way too far if you want to and so that way i think you can start bringing in these comments where people from the show you know are talking about their role in it but also i think they find it i haven't actually seen any of the people that we mentioned talk about their feelings about the show. They talk, we talked about their experience and how they didn't get along with Lynch or they felt mistreated by him or misled by him or that Sabrina Sutherland just gave them an idea that uh, we're going to get a whole song and, then, and they got, you know, 30 seconds or mm. Sherilyn Fenn came in halfway through production and so they had to rewrite her part or whatever. There's all these different ways that people had their own personal experiences and that stuff is interesting but I don't know if it can really change the, the text as you talk about, you know, the 18 hours. I mean, even TV back at First Twin Peaks, TV trains us to read it multiple ways. 
TV shows going back through the 90s and 80s were training us to like think about the, like how the actors are seeing the show that they're watching and acting in. So I think it's 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 there to be looked at. But I think the show also just it's got its seams visible, like it's fine. Um, you know, cheap visual effects like when yeah. Ike the Spike's knife has got an Adobe like Photoshop filter <laughs> spotlight. That's right. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You look at it now and you're like, that this is unacceptable. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> unacceptable. And if my, you know You should see Christian's face right now. Yeah. He's very if unimpressed. My and if like that, be like, you're you're out. Yeah. Uh, but it's fine because it's doing its own thing. I loved the sh- I loved watching the show and I loved um, picking it apart, but it's got it seems visible and that's fine. Mm-hmm. The fact that it got produced is a miracle considering. So yeah. But I think these elements give us license to read it, not just as a mystery to be on uns- mystery to kind of unpack, but as sort of another layer beyond that, a mystery of how it came together mm. and how these very strong personalities and people managed to work together on. You know, Harry Dean Stanton being case in point, like he was really struggling there health wise for a couple of years. McAlfoy mm. really struggling for a couple of years beforehand. And I'm sure David Bowie would have been in given another six months. Yeah. Yeah, Catherine Coulson, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting as well where you're talking about special effects, about how jarring they were sometimes. Like the death of Mr Todd, for example, was just this what? Like this sort of thing would have looked, crappy in 1982, let alone now. But in a way it gives you that double layer of shock because you're so used to seeing these realistic heads blown apart, you know, and that when you get something like this, it's this kind of like work of art, weird sort of messy raw thing you see for about half a second. It's like... Yeah, it really it has an extra effect, I think. Well, I mean, also, textually, like, is this whole show a dream? And so that's okay that these special effects are, are kind of a bit sloppy if we think about it. Although, you know, I kind of I adore, I adore them and I think they're really quite sharp in a way. But, like, that's all okay because it makes sense within the, the internal logic or, you know, <laughs> refusal of logic in the show. Well, yeah. Right? So that, that's yeah. perfect. And they're even sharper because we get the stunning special effects in part eight. And when, when they choose to have good special effects, mm. they can certainly do them when they want to. But yeah, when he chooses not to, I think it's really interesting. Which brings us to Twin Peaks. Shelley, this is the third time she's asked you for money in two weeks. I know. If you don't help her now, It's going to get a lot harder to help her later. We both know that too, don't we? Um, So we first see uh, the town in part one at the sheriff's department. So why not kick off there? Because that actually ends up, you know, resolving back in part 18 as uh, being a very, very key location. Kind of occupied this interesting place of nostalgia. So we've been given a whole lot of new stuff, you know, in the beginning of part one. You know, we got the Vegas, we get a bit of Vegas, we get a lot of New York, and then we get the sun shining, the God rays over the top of the sheriff's department, and we suddenly get these warm lights, we get these warm colors, we get these familiar um, characters, you know, who haven't changed in a way that's kind of like beautiful and reassuring, but it's also traumatic because, like, who wants to work in a diner for thirty years or? You know, even if you get Bobby Briggs and a few characters actually transitioning, there's an awful lot of stasis. Um, and so it kind of like shoves your nostalgia or your yearning for nostalgia that is bringing so many people to the show back into your face in this actually, you know, it's a really ugly situation in a way, even though there are very sweet characters. Um, because I remember when we were talking about the early scenes about how phenomenally slow Lucy and Andy and Hawke's scenes were and 
this was possibly like the beginning of a lot of people's frustration that were then amplified via Dougie mm. where the stuff was just moving molasses slow and you were like, come on, you know, there's so many, well, how's any? There's still a big question going around at that stage. Were you satisfied, like, with these earlier scenes and then how the characters developed? I'll just quickly say, I think that the sheriff's station was shot so beautifully in that last episode and had a tension, I think, that is the most tense sequences in the entire Twin Peaks series is when Bad Coop enters the building and you don't know what Truman number two is going to do or what he's thinking and it has a tension that is unlike anything that the show's done before. That's all I'll say. Mm. Yes, yeah. The frustration experienced with going, oh, you know, who wants to work in a diner for 25 years? I grew up in a very small country town. (laughs) And it's quite realistic. I mean, there are a couple of people who break out of that and a couple of people who surprise you, but there are people who just stay working in the diner and are very happy, you know, in that role. It really reflected, I think, real small town life in a way. Those early scenes with Lucy and Andy particularly... Maybe it was because I had been unused to the show. The rhythm of their their speech suggested to me, I was like, oh, my God, they're really bad actors. That was what I couldn't get out of my head. I was like, these are just really bad actors. But then it kept going and all of these characters kept talking with the same rhythm. And I'm like, that's just Lynch. That's just what Lynch asks of his actors, I think, is to speak in this very, very deliberate, very slow Cadence and for me, that's the difference between Tammy and um, Andy and Lucy. Is I feel like Andy and Lucy were doing that on purpose. I feel like that was their actual role in this, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Tammy, it felt like an accident. Yeah, she was like, oh, I'm not quite sure how to do this. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry if you love Tammy. Oh, we do, yeah, but Tammy fans. No, I think that's attention. perfectly, that's that's very accurate description. Because the very first thing we saw in Twin Peaks was Jacoby getting his shovels delivered and then watching each one individually get spray-painted gold, which kind of set the pace for that, which I remember like at the time a lot of people were saying, oh, okay, maybe Twin Peaks is in a dream because everybody's moving and talking so slowly and there's this sort of hints were dropped but then stuff started escalating when we started seeing the double R and and we got the whole Shelley Becky story mm-hmm. kicking off and then that's when we started getting Sparkle introduced and things started moving at more normal speed you know we also never got Wally returning oh, which yeah. I'm kind alas. of grateful for <laughs> alas <laughs> I know there were all of these big no. theories about Wally mm, and about yeah. You know, I'm glad that they never eventuated. Andy did tell me some of them, and I'm glad that they never. <laughs> but one of them came from you, Beck. Your idea that, that Dougie was going to arrive oh, back yeah. on the back of Wally's motorbike. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to work out all the ways. I thought, oh, if I work out all the ways possible that Dougie can get back to Twin Peaks, <laughs> one of them's bound to be right. And one of them actually semi was. So, you know, I'm quite happy with that. Yeah. The PowerPoint thing. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, alas, clearly they could only get Michael Sarah for one day. Yeah. Fine with me. But, you know, I kept on looking because Lucy spoke in this deliberate way. Not Anyway. Because Lucy spoke in this deliberate way, I saw her as this oracle. And, you know, when when we had that big reveal, when she did actually participate in a major way in the story, I was very happy. And I'm like, yay! It's, Mm -hmm. you know, I really believed in Lucy because I think she was my favourite character in, you know, the first two seasons. And so I think when she did come through and... 
had a major part to play, I was very happy. So I'm happy to hang on every word Lucy says. Yeah, I, I love the fact how Lucy and Andy ended up being sutured into, like, major action. Yes. That was That was an instance of Twin Peaks being uh, surprisingly satisfying yes. when you don't expect it. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting, like, that Andy goes to go to the White Lodge and gets given all these visions and stuff. Um, and how many people beforehand were going? There's no way that any like that would just be ludicrous. That, you know, Andy does not belong in the in the red room. That's just so stupid. And then as soon as it happened, everyone's like, "Oh my god, it was so obvious." He's the only person who could have been. He's the only man who's pure enough to be able to actually yeah. go through the gateway and pass be the dweller so on the threshold. So all the Hawk fans just switched to Andy. Basically, exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because everyone was like, "Oh, it's obviously going to be Hawk." Like we saw him even see the gate in the final denouement. You've got all like all these major characters coming in from all around America stopping at the threshold of the sheriff's room but not crossing through mm. that archway. Mm. Mm. And it's so intense and you're like, they're lined up and it's like a weird like rogues gallery and like, ah, Hawk's just in time with all the investigative work that he's done to watch things happen. Like, and all these like <laughs> yeah. these characters, Gordon Cole, you just made it to watch things happen. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Coming in. Um, but it reminded me of a Bunuel film, The Exterminating Angel, where all the, mm. all the guests in the party can't leave the mm. threshold of the party until they've expunged their sins. And then, but it feels it feels like more than that whole sheriff's department's got a whole other sort of visual energy as a result. So they've all kind of come in, they're doing their thing, but there's a kind of like a, a structure there. Yeah, it's like a theatre yeah. set almost. Presumium, yeah. Can I ask, so Thank I'm you. sorry yeah. to bring this up without checking first, but is the... The guy that plays the drunk that a lot of people assume is Billy, does he come up in that scene too? Or is no. he left? Oh, no, he's left behind. He's left behind. <laughs> That's a good point, actually, yeah. Left behind. And, and he says, I have to take you all upstairs now. Yeah, but so they're all supposed to go upstairs, but we don't see him. Don't yeah, see yeah, drunk. Okay. No. I just was thinking that today. Did I see him? <laughs> Hawk. Now the circle is almost complete. Watch and listen to the dream of time and space. It all comes out now, flowing like a river. That which is and is not. Hawk. Laura is the one. Um, also, at the sheriff's department was a lot of conversations between, conversations between Hawk and the log lady, which ended up becoming this interesting role where we had the log lady introductions in seasons one and two that you got on Bravo when they was re-televised, and so she became this extra. Had this, she kind of had the extra dimension, the almost meta meta dimension that we were talking about earlier when you're talking about people commenting on the show and these extra layers being put onto it. But then now for the return, they were kind of integrated her like words of wisdom where they, she was giving these sort of thematic introductions and reflections on what we were ha- what we were seeing. And so now when people are looking back and we're getting a lot of people trying to read into the lyrics of songs at the Roadhouse and reading in these other passing references um, to find extra dimensions, people keep coming back to, of course, Log Lady's conversations because she had so many insights, but then they were delivered in this phenomenal way where it was felt like it was kind of maybe filmed in all one afternoon, but one hell of an afternoon. I was so moved by everything that she said. I loved it. I really took note of the way that she spoke and the rhythm of her words. And I thought, you know, I think I commented to you sometime, Andy, that, you know, it was very similar to the way that other people, perhaps Norma, spoke 
you know, and it, that that was the way that obviously Lynch was directing her or and his characters to all speak. But I was very on board with it. But I think I also commented you at, at some point that it was really interesting the way that those scenes were shot or cut at least because there were lots of very disruptive cuts back to Hawk listening to what she was saying in the middle of in the middle of a word that she was saying it might cut back to Hawk listening and then cut back and it was quite disruptive and I thought perhaps that was meant to suggest that she was indeed just giving commentary on the show and that we were Hawk in that space listening as the audience and that was why they were constructed in that way um and I love I don't know when I watched the show when I was younger I I mean, was Log Lady annoying? Was she annoying? Is that what <laughs> is that what the general consensus was? Because that's what my memory of her was. And really? then I was like, why am I so, you know, I'm really, really, really moved by her in this new series. And so that was quite a, a jump for me. Mm. But I found that very... Well, she was eccentric. I don't know about annoying. But okay. <laughs> the introductions she had were extremely elliptic. Okay. I did skip all the introductions on the Blu-ray like, I think as well because we know what her story actually is in real life. Or mm. What's her name? Um, Margaret, Margaret Lansman. Right? Or, yeah. yeah. No. Catherine Coulson. Catherine. The, you know, it was really moving because it seemed to speak in a broader context than just the show. It was really that meta kind of context, I think. Can I ask, I have, do I have a weird memory or does it say in memory of Margaret Lansman in the show. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So the in-character... Not the actress. Not the actress. She gets both. She gets I think both. She gets both. Okay. At the end, I think at the end of part it. three, it's Catherine Coulson and then Margaret Lantman when, when she passes. When the episode that she passes away, it's mm-hmm. Margaret Lantman, yeah. All right. Mm. But then, yeah, the, which again ties back into commentary about the show where David Lynch is like she was... Margaret Lantman to me in real life. I think he might have even called her Margaret. He certainly called Miguel Ferrer Albert, like, in real life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you make it that way, you will. Um, also in Twin Peaks is the double R, which is probably like the second point, most like notable location in the town, where we had um, the familiar characters of Norma and then Shelley and Heidi. Uh, and then we got also like uh, it would have been so familiar with it's been such a warm, familiar, like beautiful, loving place that when we got the bullets coming through the window, it felt like a total violation, I thought, of like this, like, you know, I think we, some people were describing it as like the White Lodge of Twin Peaks where it was just good things and good happen, good things happening or magic, it's like, you know, slightly magical things happening like Audrey's dance or whatever. Uh, where you would also get these important pieces of information shared as well, like Major Briggs receives information from uh, from Sarah Palmer in, in episode 29, and you get these key insights for Cooper when he first meets the log lady and chats to her and stuff like that. So when you're having these bullets come through and then it turns out, you, you know, you're getting Deputy Bobby bringing some sort of, attempting to bring some sort of order to this really chaotic situation, mm. that it kind of has this extra layer because, of the, because it was the double R. Because, you know, that if that bullet went in somewhere else, then it, it would be nothing as like as traumatic. Plus, we've just seen Red and Shelley where we realise that these cycles are happening again, which I think... I mean, it's a diner. It's America's safe place. Like, you don't want anything to to disrupt that. Mm. And I think what's really interesting is that the diner is the place in, in episode 18... Or in part 18, sorry, where Cooper or Richard, as he is, takes down those three um, Texan assholes... Um, because that is a space perhaps which is, you know, is, is unable to be violated. You can't violate, even though, you know, whether we want Richard to succeed or not is questionable because his character is unknown to us by that point. There's this threat to humanity within this space of the diner and Richard comes in and he disrupts that. And so that is 
perhaps David Lynch saying, I'm going to keep the diner as yeah. a safe space. I don't know. I don't know. And also we get characters, new characters like Miriam. She's introduced in the diner as being this really, really un- instantly likeable character. Do we find out what happens to Miriam other than making it to hospital? I that think that's it. That's, that's all we learn about okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. She seems to be on the improve. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I figure if you've got Ben Horn's money being funneled towards you, probably. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. 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 But also as an icon of the show within the structure of the icon of the diner in American screen history, it's really fascinating because Norma decides to take the double R back from this chain that she's created and she says, no, I don't want it to be in Norma's diners anymore. I just want it to be the double R. And that that is kind of this grand gesture in itself because she doesn't want to be a sellout and she just wants it to be a local venue um, and that that's really beautiful and that's kind of like the show or, you know, her at least suggesting that that she just wants to identify as a local only um, and as independent possibly. I don't know, I could be going... No, it's an interesting rejection of You know, independent yeah. rather than, um, you, know, uh, you know, kind of participating in a larger structure of um, diners or television or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know. yeah. Um, absolutely. Another key place um, we spent a lot of time in was the Great Northern, where we saw, in, like back in part one, um, Je- uh, Ben and Jerry chatting. Um, we got introduced to Beverly Page and Ashley Judd and her t- strange little side trip. Um, we also got James Marshall and Freddie Sykes working security and investigating the um, strange sound that we. You know, the strange sound is probably one of my favourite parts of the show as well, is that. Mm. You know, that, that listening kind of game where they're walking around the room and they're like, now it's over there and now it's over yeah. there, I think was really magical. And I think that meant, you know, there is an element of magic in this show and and to try and uncover where it was and to go, hey, maybe it's Mike. I think that was your thing is like, that's Mike's sound. Um, to go, yeah, he's underneath is <laughs> really exciting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was played really nicely, I thought. Mm. Kept a mystery but then kept this kind of light, like kind of flirtatious Thing. I mean, it's interesting. We were talking about earlier about electricity and technology and how it, there's so many interesting representations of it here. You get the you know the Skype TV inside Frank Truman's desk. Um, you get like Dougie playing with the elevator doors and these kind of like innocent play you know, like ways to play with technology. But then you get this kind of malevolence as well, like with the glass box and these different ways that people are bringing in like Doppelkoop's use of mobile phones and that sort of stuff. Or in the you know makeshift office that Gordon Cole has set up. Yeah, yeah what is all going these on with all those machines and flashing lights and beeps? Like nobody yeah. knows. Well, it turns out they're just purely there for the you know the hyper fast law dump that we get at the beginning of part seventeen, where they work out that Dougie is Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, um, and another place uh, was the Roadhouse. Now this is really interesting because there's so many people seem to have different takes on this because the, the band started playing this really really almost like Greek chorus role. Where now, when you look at like lyrics like "No Stars," the song that um, John and F will talk about in a little while, um, you can start seeing now that uh, Part Eighteen is finished. All these different ways of looking at those lyrics and and seeing how that they maybe tie into this extra dimension that we get in Part Eighteen, where there's like there's no stars. There's you know there's, um, Rebecca Del Rio singing about going to that place. You know the place. You know the one. And um, I know that uh, you guys like Haley and Ello, you both like were doing some really good reads of the lyrics as well, like earlier parts, like with the chromatic songs or mm. uh, with these sorts of other scenes where we're getting introduced to these peripheral characters and uh, getting more of, I guess, of a colour of the town. Um, did you guys have any takes on these uh, like booth conversations? They weren't strong acting wise and stuff like the empty can, like they were drinking <laughs> from an empty can. <laughs> and had no weight and you could watch it physically kind of bounce around in their hand. 
if, and there was no foley to give yeah. her any any like oral weight. Yeah. That seems really lazy to me. But maybe that was a purpose. But maybe not because Lynch makes mistakes. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Just also like the really over the top, um, like matte eyeshadow with no reflection up top, stuff that just looks like it needed to be a scene. It was kind of put together. And, um, yeah, I don't have anything kind of mm, to unpack okay. at the Roadhouse. I didn't... Except for the scratching of the underarm, oh, like yeah, all these yeah. things that were like, it's really significant. It's yeah. not. Um, and I'm, <laughs> it's, it's not, but maybe it is. Like, maybe it is. I mean, nobody's really come up with a theory that really explains this. Yeah, well. I've been yeah. looking out for these theories because I was figuring like, you know, in, back in the early 90s, it would take, you know, a couple of years and the, like the 10th watch through, you'd get something and then, oh my God, you know, or you might, if you were lucky, come across a copy of Wrapped in Plastic where somebody had done all these hard work and now Internet Hive Mind can pull all this stuff, you know, in a few hours. But still, nobody's really come up with the, with like with all these like millions of connections being made out there. Nobody's really well, I like mean, we still decisively had the time, even yeah. though there is a higher volume of output and like you know theory on the internet. There's still not the same time or care being put into these things. So maybe it will come. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think it's it's like code cracking an open safe. I think the treasure is right there. Like it's to be found mm. and picked out right now. But also, yeah, there's going to be stuff that we don't expect. It won't be like the timeline of the episodes match up to make a sound, or it'll be like this character is actually really meaningful, has a purpose. Yeah, it'll see, be years, yeah. So, well, I think there is something really interesting there, like with Billy. Like, if we go back and look at all the times Billy is mentioned and who is mentioning Billy, it's only ever a member of David Lynch's family who's mentioning this character, apart from Audrey, right. who may be referring to a different one altogether, because this whole meta thing is that. We get people referring to, you know, Monica Bellucci is Monica Bellucci and there's every chance that if Audrey is occupying these two dimensions at the same time, she's talking about Billy Zane. <laughs> yeah. oh my God, uh, maybe we should be looking into uh, Lynch's family and finding out if there's some, like, long-lost cousin Billy who, you know, th- they're just brought into <laughs> probably, it. probably got another kid. <laughs> but again, my thing of saying that, that there was a lot of sort of weight or there's this gravity on these vignettes where you're like, well... It, it seems like it should be meaningful. Like, I can't remember what the girl... Oh, I don't know. There's she Renee. had a name when she's like, oh, I'm not sure if my uncle was there. Yeah. I can't remember if my uncle was there. And why would you repeat that oh, line? So yes. everybody grabs onto it and they're like, <laughs> it means something. And then, well, so far as, you know, we don't know that it means anything. So mm. why was it given that weight? And if I was writing, you know, writing something I, and I did that, people would be like, no, that's... Yeah. Why would you do that? That's, <laughs> take that out. Cut that out now. <laughs> Yeah, very true. I think it would be good to finish on the Fat Trout Trailer Park because of Harry Dean Stanton mm-hmm. and that, how he began this particular um, episode. So let's go to the spiritual dimensions that are very easily tacked onto Twin Peaks, particularly through the Roadhouse. we got um, Audrey possibly occupying these two places at the same time, both the Roadhouse, which has also been home to spiritual beings before when they choose to appear to people. It's sometimes there. Uh, and so we spend a lot of time with these very spiritual spiritual places that we haven't really like landed on a name. Like there's the Mauve Zone, I suppose. Mm-hmm. There's the Senorita Dido and the Fireman, which I think is a version of the White Lodge, although I'm happy to be corrected or there to be subsequent theories that disprove that. But we did spend a lot of time there in Part 3 and, um, and then in Part 8 when we saw the creation of Laura, or well, a version of Laura, the Laura Ball. Yeah, so the flyman was introduced as lots of question marks and we were all like, no, it's the giant. I don't care what, you, what you're going to put him in the credits. Like, everyone knows that Carol Stricken is the giant. But then he off, then his name was leaked via a song title that mm. Angela Pedlamenti did, I think, and then a couple of episodes later he was credited as the fireman. What did you make of these guys? I was kind of really, really on... I really loved the way that 
the, the pacing that we saw in Twin Peaks Sheriff Station it seemed to make a lot of sense here when it was, we got a lot of backward speech and it was really slow because I wanted to spend a lot of time in these places and find out because I felt like there's a lot of mysteries there, particularly with the sound that we were getting because we were told to listen to the sounds very early on. I think it, on reflection, my favourite visual sequence is Cooper's drop into the next to the Mauve Sea and as he overlooks the sea, not just because there's like a direct visual match for June, however, <laughs> however... Importantly noted. But the scale, again, it's the, for the theme for me is the expansion of the universe where he's like, he looks across and he's still who he is. He's still, whatever Cooper is, he's still there. He's looking across, he's going, oh, shit. Like, I have no idea what's happening. I've been in some place and now I'm someplace else. And also for us, like a, the very stagecraft element of the Red Room gives way to this very sort of CG... Mm. Um, sort of very computery space. Yeah, um, yeah, it was like an 80s computer game almost. Yeah. Well. well. <laughs> yeah, would, sorry, you <laughs> can speak from uh, <laughs> Yes. Uh, but th- that, that moment gives it a, gave it a real... And I actually preferred that, I think, to, although I, I loved 8, Part 8, I think that moment in Part 3 is really beautiful because it gives us a sort of a whole new plateau to sit on. Yeah. Um, and also in living in these sort of potential other realms with the Woodsmen, which were, have been voted by several um, internet publications as being the best new characters from The Return. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, well, that was my reaction too. Yeah. Look, they were pretty great. I mean, I, but I feel like they would have been as impressive if all we had seen was that one Woodsman sitting in a jail cell adjacent to Bill Hastings. And you were like, who is that? Um, that was very impressive, and we were all really shocked. And, and then when that one other one and that other the one walked through the morgue or wherever that it was, was that was fantastic mm, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I maybe would have even just been more impressed if that was mm. all they were, rather than these other characters. Although that that poem that they were reciting, and I loved the sound effect when they crunched people's heads off. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> um, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, they were an interesting choice, I thought, because we, you can give them all this frosty and backstory should you want to, like with the whole Abraham Lincoln impersonator. Did he, you know, is he like a... He seems to be like a product of the experiment, but then who took on the first the form of the first thing he saw, which was a coin. But then that's just, like, possibly nonsense. I don't even, I don't know why. Maybe... But I feel there has to be some sort of reason that they went with an Abraham Lincoln impersonator for the But there's only one of them, yeah. That was just the one, yeah. yeah. Were they chimney sweeps? Were they somehow related to the fireman? <laughs> Twin Peaks is in the Mary Poppins universe. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, 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 yeah. Part of... four, oh, season four is just a musical. Gene, right. Gene. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke is <laughs> coming back. Oh Gene my Gene god, if they leave a dick, I'm just 100% on board for series four. Right. <laughs> Soundbite. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, plus the weird dance they were doing around Doppelcoop, mm. that was always really weird and disconcerting in a really interesting way. Reminded me of the Industrial Symphony number no. one stage show Lynch did right after Twin Peaks. Lots of like circular dancing. There was heaps of that stuff. Yeah, right. So, like, okay. Yeah. What about Philip Gerard? It was an occupant of this uh, spiritual realm as well. Uh, please note I made the thumbs up gesture. Yep. Please note on the transcript. Thumbs yep. up. Thumbs up. I can take a photo and attach that <laughs> to the show notes should you want me to. Philip Gerard is Mike, yep. who is a one-armed man who is like a really, really positive, good uh, force, occupant of the White Lodge, has, is, was extremely helpful for Dougie on a number of occasions. Um, and we kept expecting to see his real form, like as the shoe salesman we saw in season one and turn up at some point. But, again, never happened. He was just um, occupying that White Lodge. Being able to like uh, manipulate reality and then it, when it really mattered, Cooper could 
actually just like have a transaction with him and just take a ring off him in in part 17 which was kind of cool if you want to include a comment about Audrey, I feel like probably like a lot of other people that it was a shame that there was not more Audrey, but I think that cut from her doing that dance to possibly being reminded in her psyche if this is what was happening of something too horrific for her psyche, to, for her subconscious to process so she had to wake up and be terrified. I thought that was an incredible sequence and that if we had seen more of it, it would have been... A, a pleasure yeah, in the fiction, yeah. but we did not. And so that was a real shame, I think, but that's just what it is. I feel like it was a real waste of that scene. To It was so incredible that that it was a shame to not have more. Mm. What was I thought it was – I thought I was most upset about that with the uh, part 18 and going, but we didn't find out no, what happened Audrey. to Audrey and that was the one thing I was like, I want to find out what happens to Audrey – and that's probably the thing that I've done the biggest turnaround on is going, that works. When you put all her parts together, it actually really works and I love how it's, how it's mm. working. Yeah, I agree. I really I thought it, was, it wasn't it was satisfyingly acted, but it was nicely timed, I think. She was always a dreamlike character. So yeah. When you think yeah. about what she was like in, in seasons one and two, it completely makes sense mm. the way that she was depicted in season three. It's just a shame that there was not more. Because I feel like that was such a rich story yeah. that we could have got more out of it. I'm pro Charlie. I'm asked that. Really? Pro Charlie's good. I like Charlie. Yeah, okay. I'm on to Charlie. Yeah, I think he's good. good. Okay. <laughs> Haley's like, this is it. Knives <laughs> <laughs> are coming out. I'm done. I'm leaving. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> End of podcast. Okay, well, so let's finish up the Fat Trial Trailer Park with Kyle Rod. And we got a bit of Becky, Stephen and Gersten that they're tacked on as well. So this was interesting because, first of all, Fat Trout did this weird, like, geographical leap, you know, several mm-hmm. hundred kilometres north to the outskirts of Twin Peaks, which was never really explained, along with it, it's only electrical pole, which also, you know, appeared in Andy's vision, but that was the electrical pole. The electrical pole also turned up outside Carrie's house. With the number six on it? With the number six on it. Well, it's it exactly the same, same, line, it's exactly the same one. <gasps> so that was the one that... Yeah, people that, done photos side to side to so check So nobody picked this up. That when, we, when Andy had his vision, everyone was like, oh, it's the number six electrical pole, you know, outside the fat trailer park. But no, once you finish part 18, you're like, no, it was actually... He was, he was seeing that, which makes a lot mm. of people go, well, the White Lodge created this alternate reality that we spend a lot of time in in part 18. I have heard a theory that I quite like, which is when in part 8, when we see the firemen create the Laura Ball and shoot her up the fallopian tube and out into the world, it's actually not the firemen creating Laura, it is the firemen hiding Laura after she passes. Okay, yeah, that's a good theory. Sit, sit and ruminate on that one. Well, yeah, because Laura Ball seems to be heading towards Washington State, but then doesn't necessarily have to mean that she wound up there. Interesting theory. I like that one. The winds might have changed. <laughs> yeah, maybe that wasn't safe enough for her. Um, golf. <laughs> correct for wind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we get uh, Carl Rod with this bastion of purity and wonderfulness that, um, and also could crack out a tune when, when needed. Yeah, he, seemed, he seemed to have a very interesting uh, uh, backstory in The Secret History in which he was given these kind of properties where he could see uh, this, where he had experiences with either the White Lodge or he passed through the Red Room like um, the Log Lady. But he came out to express it in a very, very different way and he became this sort of protector. Or, you know, he's like this cantankerous guy in Fire Walk With Me but then when we see him in The Return he's kind of at peace with the world and able to summon VW Beetles with the tooth of a whistle. Was he a bookhouse boy? Was that 
did I miss something? Mm, I don't know no, if he okay. was. No. I th- thought that the scene with him and the little kid was kind of phenomenal after Richard Horn runs down that kid. Mm, yeah, that, that was one of the episodes I rewatched up in the lead up to watching the last two episodes, and it is still just emotionally devastating, even amongst all of those extras who clearly cannot act. So, because mm. Harry Dean just blows them all away with a look. Well, I doesn't even need to do that. Nah, it's just there. It just needs to be there. Yeah, it's been beautiful seeing all the shots of the flowers on that bench. Mm. since he's passing as well. That brings us to the end. Next week we're going to have, be having on Keith Gow, who's, who's published a fantastic article about Cooper and his journey, and we're going to be looking at uh, ways of seeing, I suppose, there as well. Thank you to all of our guests tonight. Thank you. Yes, of course. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Oh, you're most welcome. Yes. Great job on the last four months of podcast and Ah, yeah. I'm a shell of a human being. <laughs> been amazing. I'm so excited to have been part of. Yeah. Yes. So thank you very much. Thank you for coming on, Beck. Every Beck. single podcast. Aww, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. And best of luck with the book. Oh, thank you. Would you, yes. would you like to mention it on the please on the way Please mention out? all books. Please plug all yeah. various products. Um, there will be a book called uh, Merely June. Um, but it will be a book just about the David Lynch film June uh, out through Constellations, which is an imprint of Auto Press, and that will come out um, during the late part of next year. Great. I'll have my Ooh. name on it, but also a nice little picture of a worm on the front. Oh, good. Have you already decided on the cover? No, no, well, they've already decided. Most, oh. yeah. Okay, cool. Is that your avatar? No. <laughs> they have to like they have to use it, like the most publicity prone. Yeah, it's right. boring. Is it true that Carl McLaughlin favorited a tweet of yours recently? It is true. <gasps> it's true. He's favorited me favorited me twice. Really? Both oh, red letter days, so two extra cakes a year for me. And <laughs> <laughs> what was his particular tweet that he took to? I said, uh, you know, during the recent, um, you know, the tearing down the Confederate statues, the racist mm-hmm. Confederate statues. I said, tear them all down and replace them all with a plan. At Carl McLaughlin riding a sandworm. First one to first one to fat it. Mm. <laughs> like, That's fantastic. You're probably in trouble now, but <laughs> great. I'm gonna live on this story forever. This is beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful. That's it for me. Cool. And that wraps up our roundtable discussion of Twin Peaks The Return. We're going to close this week's episode with an interview with longtime Lynch collaborator John Neff. And as you'll hear, John worked closely with David Lynch on all of his productions between The Straight Story and Inland Empire, most notably in the band Blue Bob that was made up of the two of them. John's work on The Return was limited to co-writing the song No Stars, sung by Rebecca Del Rio at the end of Part 10. Against some stiff competition, No Stars was recently voted the best song from the series by the website Stereogum. I begin our interview by asking him about this. Uh, Originally, I wrote the music for the second Blue Bob album, which never got released. And it was to be... We had a uh, song in Mulholland Drive called Pretty 50s, which was light, sort of a 1950s, dating kind of uh, atmosphere. And then I wanted this one to be a heavy 50s. So I wrote chords that were in the harmonic minors instead of the major keys. So it has a sad feel to it. So I wrote that for Dave and I to play on uh, the second Blue Bob album. And uh, at the same time, we had met Rebecca. We recorded her for... Mulholland Drive, and Dave wrote the lyrics to No Stars and said, I think this would work with your chords. Let's bring Rebecca in. Does the version that you recorded with Rebecca have auto-tune on it? Because you might have seen a lot of the discussion was around the use of 
what people, some people perceived to be auto-tune on her voice. <laughs> auto-tune was brand new at the time. Dave had bought it, and he wanted to experiment with it. So I did use auto-tune on her voice. Uh, not that it was necessary in terms of pitch, because she has very good pitch control, but Dave wanted to play with it as an effect. Right, okay. Yeah, because um, 16 years later, it does sound <laughs> um, unusual, I suppose. That iteration. Well, we of, were ahead of, of our time. Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> we beat T-Pain to the game. Um, so how did coming up with this song differ to, or compare to other projects you worked on with David Lynch because you have a long history together, don't you? Oh, we did. Uh, we had 28 pieces of unreleased music uh, when I left. We had plans for a lot of music. But um, No Stars was created in the oven of uh, creativity that was expanding around Blue Bob and David's experimentation with the electric guitar. I played all the instruments on um, No Stars, except Dave also played an electric guitar track. So it was created at a time when we were making a lot of music. Um, um, do you think any of this other music will see the light of day? <laughs> I couldn't answer that with an honest face. Dave remembers everything, and uh, if he in the future decides that something we did as a use for him, and all of a sudden I'll get a phone call again. Mm, okay. Because uh, this version of No Stars runs for about seven minutes, and I think it comprises about, I think I did the math, about 13% of the entire episode. So it's a fairly big chunk of um, part 10 that you're partly responsible for, I suppose. Good. <laughs> yes. So so in, so in this performance, uh, Rebecca Del Rio is syncing, lip-syncing to a recording she did 15, 16 years ago? It's it's the vocal from then too. Yeah. Um. So have you been working with uh, David more recently? No. We communicate a couple times a year, but uh, he found a guy to replace me when I left, uh, named Dean Hurley, and uh, they're off on their own adventures. And God bless them, they're having fun. So that's that. I thank David for teaching me to fish. I mix mm -hmm. independent films now. And um, it's all been good. You know, the other thing is the the website, davidlynch.com, gave birth to a lot of ideas. And I did all the audio and music and sound effects and all that stuff for davidlynch.com and the various series that were on it, like Rabbits, Dumbland, and uh, Out Yonder, mm -hmm. other things like that. That was all part of my daily job was... We were cranking out material for the web. So was this job like a nine-to-five sort of thing, or was this, you know, two in the morning, I've got an idea, let's get it down? It was ten to seven. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. With breaks for um, TM, I imagine. Yes, we had a uh, 5.30 studio meditation every day. Okay. Um, and so was this like, did this take over all of your life, or was this something you could compartmentalize and move on with your own project outside of? Working with David took over my entire creative life. I didn't leave the studio for the first five years I worked there. In other words, I'd show up for work in the morning at 1 o'clock. Our lunches would be prepared and delivered to us, and we'd uh, have a quick bite in the dining room. They would have a smoke, 
we'd have a cup of coffee and head back in. Lunch might have been 15, 20 minutes long. So it ruled my life, and and that's fine because I I, I was having an absolute ball. Yeah, great. So you you got to tour with Blue Bob, right, and play internationally? We played in Paris only. That was on November 11, 2002. I'm looking at the poster right now. The album was, we signed with a French record label, and the album was to be released in 13 European countries at once on that day. So there was a big rock festival going on in Paris at various venues, and we were signed to be the headliners at the Paris Olympia Theater. We didn't know we were the headliners. We thought that we were opening for Beth Gibbons from Portishead. She had a big slot on the on the bill. The day before we appeared, the festival changed the arrangement, and now we were the headliners. And we weren't <laughs> prepared to be the headliners. We had an existing opening set of about 40 minutes, and uh, that's all we had. Because Dave and I did all the music on the record, we had to hire musicians to play live, and so we had a six-piece band for live, and they didn't know our other stuff. We didn't know our other stuff. So for the concert, now 40 minutes was all we had, and uh, some of the audience was teed off about it. Right, but was it an enjoyable experience? Oh, it was excellent. Uh, for David, it was terrifying. He did. He decided he did not like playing live. He said that his terror meter was fully pegged to the right when the show started, and with every note, it went down a little bit until with the last note, his meter bottomed out and was done. Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones loved the Blue Bob album. And the Rolling Stones offered us the chance to open up for them on their 2003 European tour, which would have nailed the success of the album. Dave, who doesn't like to travel anyway, uh, he's a smoker and he hates all the restrictions, said no <laughs> to the Rolling Stones. So there we were. We <laughs> wow. were high and dry. We did a one-show world tour. sad to see the loss of the other songs that never got released, such as No Stars? Well, both Dave and I have the rights to develop them as new material and to release them under our own names. Working with the music that you made then, it would be so tied to a time and place that it would be difficult to to, to capture it in any, any way. That's true. That's true. We would... Uh, I would show up to the studio at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'd get a call from David's office downstairs, and he'd go, fire up the amps. We're playing music today. 
<laughs> so if he was scared of performing, he was just interested in the act of creativity, I suppose, and he wasn't interested in learning chords, I imagine. You know, he was more the creation of sound. From his end, it was all the creation of sound. From my end, it was all the creation of organized music, which is why the thing works so well together. This is why the Blue Bob album works like it does. And, um, and No Stars, uh, which was from the same era. Dave loved playing music, loved creating these things, uh, loved playing guitar, and um, we just went about it on a daily basis. You know, sometimes we'd play music three or four days a week, and then we w we'd work on other things for the website or commercials or whatever, because a lot of people don't realize he does a number of commercials a year. So the music would be put on hold while other things were in the house. Uh, and when a film came in, we were strictly business on the film. When you're watching The Return, are you seeing a lot of these sorts of pieces of music and that sort of energy you were talking about, so consistent, so creative? Is this something that you've seen before, working with David? Well, the entire Return is something I've seen before. I have this theory, Return to Twin Peaks is David's grand unified field. It's where he's tying together the worlds of all of his signature films, uh, Eraserhead, Lost Highway, Inland Empire, Mulholland Drive, and uh, Blue Velvet to a certain extent. And what he's done is he's taken moods from each of those films and he's developing them and, and making them real again in our new world and um, driving it home that this is all the same world. Right. Do you think he's doing this intentionally, or is this something that's coming organically when he puts himself into this this uh, world of being given 18 hours and a fairly large budget and creative freedom? Well, I think it's on his mind. <laughs> because you were, you were a key part in making a lot of these worlds. Like, um, you know, you are working in the sound department on Mulholland Drives. You know, he's been noted far and wide as being, you know, exceptional amongst the soundtracks of modern cinema. Is this something that you, you wish you could be involved in? Be well, Lynch it, as a it's a little bittersweet. I chose to leave to build my own dream studio in Northern California. I bought 20 acres across from Skywalker Ranch, and uh, my partner and I decided to build a new $3 million studio in which I would mix films and make records for people like Journey and Santana. So I exited Hollywood to follow my own dream. Well, I built the place. I didn't get to finish it. We ran out of money, but I built it, and then we lost it. So uh, I made decisions on my own for my own future that perhaps were ill-driven, but... It was my reality, and uh, uh, once I left, David replaced me with a good guy. They now have a closed working environment, and that's fine. I understand it. I know exactly where they're coming from. I know exactly what they're up against. It's funny, watching these episodes thrust back into the world of Mall and Drive and Inland Empire, it's sonically very similar. Even elements from Eraserhead I've detected in this series. This sounds like it would have been a fairly unsustainable like, rate of living to continue 
working. I mean, it seems like it would be it would require a lot of sacrifice to be able to commit on a long, long-term basis. Well, yes, it does. And uh, but that's part of what happens when you work for Lynch. Are you still in Northern California now? No, I'm in Portland, Oregon, where I have two recording studios. One is for film and one is for music. And uh, last year I mixed four motion pictures. And uh, this year I've been working on two different albums. And um, I stay very busy, and they're good little projects, and I'm very happy. Portland's pretty hard to beat. It's a wonderful place. Yep, not too shabby. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll be in touch, John. Thanks again for the chat. Thank you, Andy. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All the best. From this valley, they say you are leaving. I will miss your bright eyes and sweet smile. For they say you are taking the sunshine. That will bright my pathway of life. Come and sit by my side, little darling. Do not hasten to bid me adieu. Just remember. 